Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. One of the things I most enjoy about presenting stories here is the great fun I find in discovering the personal lives of authors. Not only do our authors present us with brilliant literature, but they also give us glimpses into lives that are indeed majestic and fascinating. People like Jack London and Edith Wharton certainly come readily to mind, giants in their own time. And for me, H.G. Wells stands out among his peers for both the quantity of his work— over 100 books, and for the human intricacies of his private life, as colorful as almost any of his books. Often credited, as is Jules Verne, as being the father of science fiction, Wells lived during a fascinating period of history that went from the horse and buggy into the space age, or at least the imaginary space age. Perhaps as interesting, though, as his writing career, Wells's private life was a very symphony of contrasting and somewhat surprising twists and turns. Wells earned his Bachelor of Science and Doctor of Science degrees at the University of London. After marrying his cousin Isabel, Wells began to supplement his teaching salary with short stories and freelance articles, then books, including The Time Machine in 1895, The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1896, The Invisible Man in 1897, and The War of the Worlds in 1898. Wells created a mild scandal when he divorced his cousin to marry one of his best students, Amy Catherine Robbins. Although his second marriage was lasting and produced two sons, Wells was an unabashed advocate of free, as opposed to indiscriminate, love. He continued to openly have extramarital liaisons, most famously with Margaret Sanger, and a ten-year relationship with the author Rebecca West, who had one of his two out-of-wedlock children. Wells, an outspoken socialist, used his international fame to promote his favorite causes, including the prevention of war, and was received by government officials around the world. He is best remembered as an early writer of science fiction and futurism, riding the cusp of the Industrial Revolution and the ensuing modern age well into the 20th century. And now, The Remarkable Case of Davidson's Eyes by H.G. Wells. We begin. Part 1 The transitory mental aberration of Sidney Davidson, remarkable enough in itself, is still more remarkable if Wade's explanation is to be credited. It sets one dreaming of the oddest possibilities of intercommunication in the future, of spending an intercalary five minutes on the other side of the world, or being watched in our most secret operations by unsuspected eyes. It happened that I was the immediate witness of Davidson's seizure, and so it falls naturally to me to put the story upon paper. When I say that I was the immediate witness of his seizure, I mean that I was the first on the scene. The thing happened at the Harlow Technical College just beyond the Highgate Archway. He was alone in the larger laboratory when the thing happened. I was in the smaller room where the balances are, writing up some notes. The thunderstorm had completely upset my work, of course. It was just after one of the louder peals that I thought I heard some glass smash in the other room. I stopped writing and turned round to listen. 
For a moment I heard nothing. The hail was playing the devil's tattoo on the corrugated zinc of the roof. Then came another sound, a smash. No doubt of it this time. Something heavy had been knocked off the bench. I jumped up at once and went and opened the door leading into the big laboratory. I was surprised to hear a queer sort of laugh, and saw Davidson standing unsteadily in the middle of the room with a dazzled look on his face. My first impression was that he was drunk. He did not notice me. He was clawing out at something invisible a yard in front of his face. He put out his hand, slowly, rather hesitatingly, and then clutched nothing. "'What's come to it?' he said. He held up his hands to his face, fingers spread out. "'Great Scott!' he said. The thing happened three or four years ago when everyone swore by that personage. Then he began raising his feet clumsily, as though he had expected to find them glued to the floor. "'Davidson!' cried I. "'What's the matter with you?' He turned round in my direction and looked about for me. He looked over me and at me and on either side of me, without the slightest sign of seeing me. "'Waves,' he said, "'and a remarkably neat schooner. I'd swear that was Bellow's voice. "'Hello!' he shouted suddenly at the top of his voice. I thought he was up to some foolery. Then I saw littered about his feet the shattered remains of the best of our electrometers. "'What's up, man?' said I. "'You've smashed the electrometer.' "'Bellows again!' said he. "'Friends left if my hands are gone. "'Something about electrometers. "'Which way are you, Bellows?' "'He suddenly came staggering towards me. "'The damned stuff cuts like butter,' he said. "'He walked straight into the bench and recoiled. "'None so buttery that,' he said, and stood swaying. "'I felt scared. "'Davidson,' said I, "'What on earth's come over you?' "'He looked round him in every direction. "'I could swear that was Bellows. "'Why don't you show yourself like a man, Bellows?' "'It occurred to me that he must be suddenly struck blind. "'I walked round the table and laid my hand upon his arm. "'I never saw a man more startled in my life. "'He jumped away from me and came round into an attitude of self-defense, "'his face fairly distorted with terror. "'Good God!' he cried. "'What was that?' "'It's I!' "'Bellows! Confound it, Davidson!' He jumped when I answered him and stared. "'How can I express it? Right through me!' He began talking, not to me, but to himself. "'Here in broad daylight, on a clear beach, not a place to hide in.' He looked about him wildly. "'Here! I'm off!' He suddenly turned and ran headlong into the big electromagnet, so violently that, as we found afterwards, he bruised his shoulder and jawbone cruelly. At that he stepped back a pace and cried out with almost a whimper, "'What, in heaven's name, has come over me?' He stood blanched with terror and trembling violently, with his right arm clutching his left, where that had collided with the magnet. By that time I was excited and fairly scared. "'Davidson,' said I, "'don't be afraid.' He was startled at my voice, but not so excessively as before. I repeated my words in as clear and firm a tone as I could assume. "'Bellows,' he said. "'Is that you?' "'Can't you see it's me?' He laughed. "'I can't even see it's myself. Where the devil are we?' "'Here,' said I, "'in the laboratory.' "'The laboratory,' he answered in a puzzled tone and put his hand to his forehead. "'I was in the laboratory till that flash came, but I'm hanged if I'm there now. What ship is that?' 
There's no ship, said I. Do be sensible, old chap. No ship, he repeated, and seemed to forget my denial forthwith. I suppose, said he slowly, we're both dead. But the rummy part is I feel just as though I still had a body. Don't get used to it all at once, I suppose. The old shop was struck by lightning, I suppose. Jolly quick thing. Bellows, eh? Don't talk nonsense. You're very much alive. You are in the laboratory, blundering about. You've just smashed a new electrometer. I don't envy you when Boyce arrives. He stared away from me towards the diagrams of cryohydrates. I must be deaf, said he. They fired a gun, for there goes the puff of smoke, and I never heard a sound. I put my hand on his arm again, and this time he was less alarmed. We seem to have a sort of invisible bodies, said he. By Jove, there's a boat coming round the headland. It's very much like the old life, after all, in a different climate. I shook his arm. Davidson, I cried, wake up. Part 2 It was just then that Boyce came in. So soon as he spoke, Davidson exclaimed, Old Boyce, dead too. What a lark. I hastened to explain that Davidson was in a kind of somnambulistic trance. Boyce was interested at once. We both did all we could to rouse the fellow out of his extraordinary state. He answered our questions and asked us some of his own. But his attention seemed distracted by his hallucination about a beach and a ship. He kept interpolating observations concerning some boat and the Davidson sails filling with the wind. It made one feel queer in the dusky laboratory to hear him saying such things. He was blind and helpless. We had to walk him down the passage, one at each elbow, to Boyce's private room, and while Boyce talked to him there and humored him about this ship idea, I went along the corridor and asked old Wade to come and look at him. The voice of our dean sobered him a little, but not very much. He asked where his hands were and why he had to walk about up to his waist in the ground. Wade thought over him a long time. You know how he knits his brows. And then made him feel the couch, guiding his hands to it. That's a couch, said Wade, the couch in the private room of Professor Boyce, horsehair stuffing. Davidson felt about and puzzled over it and answered presently that he could feel it all right, but he couldn't see it. "'What do you see?' asked Wade. Davidson said he could see nothing but a lot of sand and broken-up shells. Wade gave him some other things to feel, telling him what they were and watching him keenly. "'The ship is almost hauled down,' said Davidson presently, apropos of nothing. "'Never mind the ship,' said Wade. "'Listen to me, Davidson. Do you know what hallucination means?' "'Rather,' said Davidson." Well, everything you see is hallucinatory. Bishop Berkeley, said Davidson. Don't mistake me, said Wade. You are alive and in this room of voices. But something has happened to your eyes. You cannot see. You can feel and hear, but not see. Do you follow me? It seems to me that I see too much. Davidson rubbed his knuckles into his eyes. Well, he said, that's all. Don't let it perplex you. Bellows here, and I will take you home in a cab. Wait a bit, Davidson thought. Help me to sit down, said he presently. And now, I'm sorry to trouble you, but will you tell me all that over again? Wade repeated it very patiently. Davidson shut his eyes and pressed his hands upon his forehead. 
Yes, said he, it's quite right. Now my eyes are shut, I know you're right. That's you, Bellows, sitting by me on the couch. I'm in England again, and we're in the dark. Then he opened his eyes. And there, said he, is the sun just rising, and the yards of the ship, and a tumbled sea, and a couple of birds flying. I never saw anything so real, and I'm sitting up to my neck in a bank of sand. He bent forward and covered his face with his hands. Then he opened his eyes again. Dark sea and sunrise, and yet I'm sitting on a sofa in old Boyce's room. God help me. Part 3 That was the beginning. For three weeks, this strange affection of Davidson's eyes continued unabated. It was far worse than being blind. He was absolutely helpless and had to be fed like a newly hatched bird and led about and undressed. If he attempted to move, he fell over things or struck himself against walls or doors. After a day or so, he got used to hearing our voices without seeing us and willingly admitted he was at home and that Wade was right in what he told him. My sister, to whom he was engaged, insisted on coming to see him and would sit for hours every day while he talked about this beach of his. Holding her hand seemed to comfort him immensely. He explained that when we left the college and drove home, he lived in Hampstead Village, it appeared to him as if we drove right through a sand hill. It was perfectly black until he emerged again, and through rocks and trees and solid obstacles, and when he was taken to his own room it made him giddy and almost frantic with the fear of falling, because going upstairs seemed to lift him thirty or forty feet above the rocks of his imaginary island. He kept saying he should smash all the eggs. The end was that he had to be taken down into his father's consulting room and laid upon a couch that stood there. He described the island as being a bleak kind of place on the whole, with very little vegetation except some peaty stuff, and a lot of bare rocks. There were multitudes of penguins, and they made the rocks white and disagreeable to see. The sea was often rough, and once there was a thunderstorm, and he lay and shouted at the silent flashes. Once or twice seals pulled up on the beach, but only on the first two or three days. He said it was very funny the way in which the penguins used to waddle right through him, and how he seemed to lie among them without disturbing them. I remember one odd thing, and that was when he wanted very badly to smoke. We put a pipe in his hands, he almost poked his eye out with it, and lit it. But he couldn't taste anything. I've since found it's the same with me. I don't know if it's the usual case that I cannot enjoy tobacco at all unless I can see the smoke. But the queerest part of this vision came when Wade sent him out in a bath chair to get fresh air. The Davidsons hired a chair and got that deaf and obstinate dependent of theirs, Widgery, to attend to it. Widgery's ideas of healthy expeditions were peculiar. My sister, who had been to the dog's home, met them in Camden Town towards King's Cross. Widgery trotting along complacently, and Davidson evidently most distressed, trying in his feeble blind way to attract Widgery's attention. He positively wept when my sister spoke to him. "'Oh, get me out of this horrible darkness,' he said, feeling for her hand. "'I must get out of it, or I shall die.' He was quite incapable of explaining what was the matter— but my sister decided he must go home, and presently, as they went up the hill towards Hampstead, the horror seemed to drop from him. He said it was good to see the stars again, though it was then about noon and a blazing day. 
It seemed, he told me afterwards, as if I was being carried irresistibly towards the water. I was not very much alarmed at first. Of course it was night there, a lovely night. Of course, I asked, for that struck me as odd. Of course, said he, it's always night there when it is day here. Well, we went right into the water which was calm and shining under the moonlight, just a broad swell that seemed to grow broader and flatter as I came down into it. The surface glistened just like a skin. It might have been empty space underneath, for all I could tell to the contrary. Very slowly, for I rode slanting into it, the water crept up to my eyes. Then I went under, and the skin seemed to break and heal again about my eyes. The moon gave a jump up in the sky and grew green and dim, and fish, faintly glowing, came darting round me, and things that seemed made of luminous glass— and I passed through a tangle of seaweeds that shone with an oily luster. And so I drove down into the sea, and the stars went out one by one, and the moon grew greener and darker, and the seaweed became a luminous purple-red. It was all very faint and mysterious, and everything seemed to quiver. And all the while I could hear the wheels of the bath-chair creaking, and the footsteps of people going by, and a man with a bell crying coals. I kept sinking down deeper and deeper into the water. It became inky black about me. Not a ray from above came down into that darkness, and the phosphorescent things grew brighter and brighter. The snaky branches of the deeper weeds flickered like the flames of spirit lamps. But after a time, there were no more weeds. The fishes came staring and gaping towards me, and into me and through me. I never imagined such fishes before. They had lines of fire along the sides of them, as though they had been outlined with a luminous pencil, and there was a ghastly thing swimming backwards with a lot of twining arms. And then I saw, coming very slowly towards me through the gloom, a hazy mass of light that resolved itself as it drew nearer into multitudes of fishes, struggling and darting round something that drifted. I drove on straight towards it, and presently I saw in the midst of the tumult, and by the light of the fish, a bit of splintered spar looming over me, and a dark hull tilting over, and some glowing phosphorescent forms that were shaken and writhed as the fish bit at them. Then it was I began to try to attract Widgery's attention. A horror came upon me. Ugh! I should have driven right into those half-eaten things. If your sister had not come— they had great holes in them, Bellows, and never mind, but it was ghastly. Part 4 For three weeks Davidson remained in this singular state, seeing what at the time we imagined was an altogether phantasmal world, and some blind to the world around him. Then, one Tuesday, when I called, I met old Davidson in the passage. "'He can see his thumb!' the old gentleman said in a perfect transport. He was struggling into his overcoat. He can see his thumb, Bellows, he said with the tears in his eyes. The lad will be all right yet. I rushed in to Davidson. He was holding up a little book before his face and looking at it and laughing in a weak kind of way. It's amazing, said he. There's a kind of patch come there. He pointed with his finger. I'm on the rocks as usual, and the penguins are staggering and flapping about as usual, and there's been a whale showing every now and then, but it's got too dark now to make him out. But put something there, and I see it. I do see it. 
It's very dim and broken in places, but I see it all the same, like a faint specter of itself. I found it out this morning while they were dressing me. It's like a hole in this infernal phantom world. Just put your hand by mine. No, not there. Ah, yes, I see it. The base of your thumb and a bit of cuff. It looks like the ghost of a bit of your hand sticking out of the darkening sky. Just by it, there's a group of stars like a cross coming out. From that time, Davidson began to mend. His account of the change, like his account of the vision, was oddly convincing. Over patches of his field of vision, the phantom would grow fainter, grew transparent, as it were, and through these translucent gaps, he began to see dimly the real world about him. The patches grew in size and number, ran together and spread only until here and there were blind spots left upon his eyes. He was able to get up and steer himself about, feed himself once more, read, smoke, and behave like an ordinary citizen again. At first it was very confusing to him to have these two pictures overlapping each other like the changing views of a lantern, but in a little while he began to distinguish the real from the illusory. At first he was unfeignedly glad, and seemed only too anxious to complete his cure by taking exercise and tonics. But as that odd island of his began to fade away from him, he became queerly interested in it. He wanted particularly to go down into the deep sea again, and would spend half his time wandering about the low-lying parts of London, trying to find the waterlogged wreck he had seen drifting. The glare of real daylight very soon impressed him so vividly as to blot out everything of his shadowy world, but of a night-time, in a darkened room, he could still see the white-splashed rocks of the island and the clumsy penguins staggering to and fro. But even these grew fainter and fainter, and at last, soon after he married my sister, he saw them for the last time. Part 5 and now to tell of the queerest thing of all. About two years after his cure, I dined with the Davidsons, and after dinner a man named Atkins called in. He is a lieutenant in the Royal Navy and a pleasant, talkative man. He was on friendly terms with my brother-in-law and was soon on friendly terms with me. It came out that he was engaged to Davidson's cousin, and incidentally he took out a kind of pocket photograph case to show us a new rendering of his fiancée. "'And by the by,' said he, "'here's the old Falmar.' Davidson looked at it casually. Then suddenly his face lit up. "'Good heavens!' said he. "'I could almost swear—' "'What?' said Atkins. "'That I had seen that ship before.' "'Don't see how you can have. "'She hasn't been out of the South Seas for six years, "'and before then—but—' "'began Davidson, and then— "'Yes, that's the ship I dreamt of.' I'm sure that's the ship I dreamt of. She was standing off an island that swarmed with penguins, and she fired a gun. Good Lord, said Atkins, who had never heard the particulars of the seizure. How the deuce could you dream that? And then, bit by bit, it came out that on the very day Davidson was seized, HMS Fulmer had actually been off a little rock to the south of Antipodes Island. A boat had landed overnight to get penguins' eggs, had been delayed, and a thunderstorm drifting up, the boat's crew had waited until the morning before rejoining the ship. Atkins had been one of them, and he corroborated, word for word, the descriptions Davidson had given of the island and the boat. 
There is not the slightest doubt in any of our minds that Davidson had really seen the place. In some unaccountable way, while he moved hither and thither in London, his sight moved hither and thither in a manner that corresponded about this distant island. How is absolutely a mystery. That completes the remarkable story of Davidson's eyes. It is perhaps the best authenticated case in existence of real vision at a distance. Explanation there is none forthcoming, except what Professor Wade has thrown out. But his explanation invokes the fourth dimension and a dissertation on theoretical kinds of space. To talk of there being a kink in space seems mere nonsense to me. It may be because I am no mathematician. When I said that nothing would alter the fact that the place is 8,000 miles away, he answered that two points might be a yard away on a sheet of paper and yet be brought together by bending the paper round. The reader may grasp his argument, but I certainly do not. His idea seems to me that Davidson, stooping between the poles of the big electromagnet, had some extraordinary twist given to his retinal elements through the sudden change in the field of force due to the lightning. He thinks, as a consequence of this, that it may be possible to live visually in one part of the world while one lives bodily in another. He has even made some experiments in support of his views, but, so far, he has simply succeeded in blinding a few dogs. I believe that is the net result of his work, though I have not seen him for some weeks. Latterly, I have been so busy with my work in connection with the St. Pancras installation that I have had little opportunity of calling to see him but the whole of his theory seems fantastic to me. The facts concerning Davidson stand on an altogether different footing, and I can testify personally to the accuracy of every detail I have given. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.